All right, good morning, y'all. Thanks for joining us. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead. If you're new here, thanks for joining us and welcome online or in person. Uh, we are continuing our study of the book of Romans, um, which is digging in to um, the present reality and value and practical impact of the resurrection of Christ. I will remind you, this is still the season of good news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Um, and we're going to be digging into that, y'all. The resurrection is good news. I don't know if you've noticed because this world is messed up. I mean, it is a mess. Um, <clears throat> thankfully, what is is not all there is. Thankfully, the mess that confronts us every single week is not going to have the final word in what kind of world this ultimately will be. The injustice and the suffering of today will not stand in the coming days. As you all know, once more this week, uh, a hurt and deceived man picked up a gun. And um, this time in Indianapolis, killed eight people, injured others. And I feel, I think I, I need to take a moment this morning and speak directly uh, to my friends in the African-American community and those who are grieving with the African-American community. Y'all, this has been a rough week. Um, to my friends, I want you to know I see you. And I know you're exhausted. This, this week alone has been overwhelming. And I, I'm not... I tried to figure out if I could list everything that happened, give a brief explanation, because I'm guessing some of you don't even know. Um, but it would literally take me 15 minutes to give you just a summary of this week. This week was filled with news of those who work violence. Obviously, the ongoing trial of Derek Chauvin, a uh, video of Army Sergeant Jonathan Pentland uh, harassing and assaulting a younger, much smaller black man because he was walking through his neighborhood. The news of Jonathan Mattingly um, signing a book deal to profit off of his um, story of being involved in the death of Breonna Taylor. Then there were those who suffered violence this week. Dante Wright, the video of Adam Toledo coming out from two weeks ago, the 13-year-old killed in Chicago. The story of Carol Horn, uh, a black female police officer who was fired and disgraced 30 years ago because she intervened when a white police officer was assaulting and then attempting to choke an unconscious, handcuffed black man. Uh, Y'all, that's just this week. And that's not all of it. So my, for my friends, I, I want you to hear, um, take a deep breath. I know you're exhausted. I know. I know Every single day this week, there was another gut punch. There are layers of suffering and layers of sorrow. The Lord knows. And the Lord is near to those who suffer. For all of us, I don't know where you are when you, you know, emotionally as you're coming into today's message. I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know how, how it has affected your heart. But there are two things I know as we open this passage. The world is jacked up, and God has a plan to fix it. This world is not 
all there is. And the worst of what's happening will not define or limit the best of what is to come. The message of the gospel is incredibly good news because our Lord is a God of resurrection. And that's what the world needs. Not a renovation. It doesn't just need to be cleaned up a little bit. Not a revolution. It doesn't need one more uh, power shift or one more partisan group taking control because they just unleashed new evils different from the ones that came before. This world needs resurrection. It's the only thing that'll fix it. And praise God, he is a God of resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead and he promised that all of creation would follow in that resurrection, that everything would be made new and that it will happen soon. But for now, he's starting with us, his people. We are the people of the resurrection. Those who have faith in Christ are in Christ, and we are filled with the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. We are filled with new life. We are new creations in Christ. What an incredible and insane story. We were traitors, saved from our treachery. We are weak, we are sinful, we are foolish, we are prideful. But we are God's people. We are the people of the resurrection. And when Christ returns, we're going to reign with him in glory. But what's really awesome, what we're digging into in our text, is, is, is we don't have to wait to taste that goodness. In fact, we're being commanded not to wait. Our passage today tells us to actually engage this incredible truth in profound ways in our lives right now. The world's a mess, and what the world needs right now is for the people of God to walk in the resurrection power of their Savior. That's what this world needs right now. So today we're coming to the, uh, one of the critical paragraphs in, in this development of, of, I mean, a critical paragraph in a book of critical paragraphs. Let's go there. I pretty much say that all the time, don't I? Um, it, it, is, it is a critical paragraph in the transition where uh, Paul is going to stop teaching us what is true, and for a moment, he's going to call us to walk in the truth. Um, he is going to be shifting from telling us what God has done for us in Christ to telling us how we are to walk forward in the power of what God has done for us in Christ, right? Verse 12, man, this verse, I got to tell you, um, well, let's read it. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This verse has been a bit of a thorn in my side. Just going to be honest. This verse has been painful to me. What I want you to hear before we even dig in is the reality is the verse, this verse is uh, an incredible invitation to freedom, but that is not how I read it for many, many years. I had a fundamental misunderstanding of what Paul is commanding or saying in this verse, and, and honestly, this verse became a little bit unbearable to me. It felt like an impossible weight on my shoulders. 
because Paul seemed to be commanding me to do something I simply didn't know how to obey, right? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You ever tried to stop sinning? Like, I'm just going to decide, right? Let's make it easy. From this point forward, I just won't sin anymore. I will not let the passions of my mortal body control me any longer, right? You ever, you ever tried it? How'd that work for you? Probably about as well as it worked for me. I mean, unless you're super self-disciplined and super self-deceived, in which case you were able to control certain behaviors and, and praise yourself on your performance, your moral improvement, and your, your religious pedigree, while you ignored other things that you couldn't control because they undermined the narrative you needed to tell about yourself, about how good and moral you were becoming. Uh, this is a ridiculously challenging verse, y'all. It is simple in what it's saying, and it seems to be impossible to obey. Now, here's the thing. I had a fundamental misunderstanding about what this verse was saying, and I think we need to unpack that first, because I don't think I'm alone. So, here's the thing. When I first came to this verse, many, many years ago, um, I saw sin as bad things I did, right? What's sin? Well, it's the bad stuff you do, right? And, and, and the reality is um, there's kind of a hierarchy to the bad things, right? I don't know that anybody actually taught me that. I was thinking about it. I don't know that anybody ever sat down and taught me the hierarchy of sin, but I knew it. How did I know it? I think it was because it just was part of this new culture that I came into. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I became a believer at 17, and suddenly I'm in this super conservative Christian environment that's so foreign to everything I had experienced, and, and there are certain things you pick up. You know what I'm saying? They're subtle. They, they're not overtly taught, although sometimes they are, right? So the hierarchy of sin. Are you guys familiar with this? Like, does this sound familiar? I mean, because when you think about it, like the top of the hierarchy is almost always going to be a sexual sin of some sort. That's like the worst. Sexual sin is the worst of all sins. It's the absolute opposite of purity, which is the ultimate goal, right? And so at the top of the sin pyramid, you got sex things, Right? however you want to define them, all the bad things that, that go with that, right? And, and just under that, you got some other stuff, right? Drinking, cussing, dancing, murder, you know, just, just a little below that. And then below that, you have a host of other things like going to the movies and, and, and that sort of stuff. And that mainly was a big problem because it could lead you back to the top of the pyramid, right? You go to the movies, you might end up having sex. I don't know exactly how that all works, but it'll lead you back into sexual sin. So you don't go into places that could tempt you to think about these things, because if you think about these things, it's kind of a shoots and ladder game, right? You're getting up there, but if you go to a movie, you might slide down the chute back into the, the, the worst of the sins, right? It's, it's this whole thing of defining sin as the bad things you do. And then we rank those bad things, and, and, and you got to avoid the worst of them. Otherwise, you are defiled right? You're, you're really bad. And, and then down the list, you know, we get, a little, we get a little fuzzy about the things that should be on the list, all right? Um, some things are unforgivable. Some things are completely ignored. Some, some things we see as like, man, I don't know if you can be redeemed from that to all the way down to we actually justify certain sins, right? Let me ask you this. If you were raised in a Christian home, if you have experience in this environment, let me ask you, where does greed rank on the list? 
In, in, in all of those purity lectures you had in your youth group, how often did, you know, did you put a band on your wrist? I will keep myself pure from greed. I will not crave more money. I, I will not fight to keep what I have and get more. Greed? Is that like even hit the marker? Right? What about gluttony as you were going to the, the church potluck? Right? Now, we don't talk about those, right? No, no, no. We don't. There's a hierarchy. There's some that are really, really bad. And then there are some that are kind of bad. And then there's others that we know theoretically are bad, but honestly, we kind of like them. <laughs> so we don't say much about them, right? Such a misperception about the nature of sin. You know, I read this verse through that lens. And what it was telling me as I read it that way was that I needed to kind of flip a switch in my head. I needed to find the magic switch that I could flip to turn off the sinful impulses on the worst sins. Like, like I, had to, I had to turn off all those sinful thoughts, all those sinful desires. Y'all, I was a 17-year-old boy full of vim and vigor. I don't even know what those two things are, but I was full of them, okay? And vim and vigor are not passive, right? They are active and bubbling. And, um, and I was being told, man, if you want to be holy, you got to turn all that stuff off. You want to be holy, you need to stop doing those bad things, Yeah. So I was told that holiness is not sinning. And, and if you're not holy, you just need to do better and try harder. Yeah, but I'm still struggling. Well, do better and try harder. Right? Yeah, but I, I don't know how to turn. Do better and try harder. Since I couldn't just turn off my sinful thoughts, what ended up happening is I, I found myself struggling with a tremendous amount of shame. I was wondering what was wrong with me. I was a believer in Jesus, but, but I couldn't obey this. I couldn't turn it off. Like, like I, it, was, it seemed like an impossible command to obey, and, and the temptation that comes from shame is hiding and pretending and performing, isn't it? Right? So, so what ends up happening is you just kind of tuck all that stuff away, and you pretend to yourself it's not there, and you definitely pretend to others that it's not there. So that you can receive acceptance in the religious circles, because in religious circles, if, if you want to have influence or if you want to have, you know, you got to be seen as somebody who's mature and is growing. And, and if, if maturing and growing means sinning less, then I need to pretend that somehow I've got this thing completely buttoned up and I'm doing all right. Um, listen, ironically, this approach not only results in failure, it will inevitably make the problem worse with good reason. I was approaching this verse and trying to, to turn my wrestling with sin into an issue of the will. That if I could just get enough willpower, if I could just get enough self-control, if I could just commit my, my and, and y'all, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a a self-control fanatic, not in everything, honestly. I'm, I'm really bad in self-control in a lot of things, but I'm one of those guys that when he sets a goal, like that goal lights me up. I, 
I will pretty much do anything to achieve the goal. And once, especially if that goal lands at the heart of my imagination. And, and I could not muster up enough, right? I had turned it into an issue of willpower and I couldn't do it. And I just kept hearing Yoda in my head. There is no try. There's only do or not do, right? Which meant Yoda was even condemning me, right? I just couldn't, I couldn't get past it. Y'all, here's what's funny about this. That sounds a lot like how the law works, isn't it? The law basically says perform and be accepted and blessed. Don't perform and you'll be cursed. Do better, try harder, and if you do better and try harder enough, you'll, you'll actually earn blessing. But if you don't, well, you'll be rejected and you'll be cursed. The law puts you in the realm of self-effort, self-improvement, self-focus, self-salvation. It's ironic. I was reading a passage that was telling me that I was delivered from the law, and yet I was using the principles of the law and trying to live the, the blessing it was describing in the, in the very power that this passage was exposing was corrupt in doing it. So if, if that's not what the verse is saying, if that's not how we're supposed to understand it, how are we supposed to understand this command? All right, so take a look at our verse again. Um, verse 12, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's a critical word in this verse, and, and I think you guys are going to start saying, man, I think that's one of Steve's favorite words in the entire Bible, if you can guess what it is. It's the word therefore. Every time you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? What that does is it tells us that this command cannot be taken out of its context, you cannot understand this command unless you understand it in the context of the, of the argument that, that Paul is developing uh, through the entire book and specifically in this section. The only way to obey this command is to understand the context of this command. So let me remind you a little bit of the context, right? What we've been looking at in Romans 5 and Romans 6. Right? What we have seen is that we are now justified by grace through faith. Right? We are declared right before God because of the saving work of Jesus. Not because of what we've done for God, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus died for my sins as my substitute, and then he rose again in victory over my death. And when I believed in Christ, his victory became my victory. His death became my death. And, and, and even though I was born in Adam, Right? I was born um, under Adam's original transgression with all of the disordered desires that come from that. I lived in the realm of death, which remember death is ultimate separation from life. Right? We're continually chasing things that don't get life, pretending that they do. Right? We're always missing the mark. And so we're, we're pursuing things that ultimately only lead to death because ultimately our deepest desires are designed to be satisfied in God. And because we're separated from God, we're trying to find those desires met in other things. So we're in Adam, right? But because Christ was born a son of Adam, in the realm of sin, though he himself didn't have sin, in the realm of death, though he didn't deserve death, he died our death. He was born a Jew under the law, but he was the first Jew who, who never broke the law. He didn't earn its, its curse, he earned its blessing, and yet he still died under its curse. And he did it as our substitute. 
so that when he was raised from the dead, he might be the first fruits of a, of a new community of resurrection, a, a, a new creation. And when we believe in Christ, we are taken from being in Adam to now being in Christ. We now no longer stand in the realm of sin and death and law. We stand in the realm of grace, undeserved, unending favor and acceptance with God, the continual outpouring of his undeserved and unlimited acceptance, joy, and delight. Why? Because as much as he delights in Jesus, he delights in me, right? I, I receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, a key word we're going to look at this morning, right? He gives it to me. His, his resurrection, active obedience becomes mine, which then transforms me and frees me into righteousness, right? Because I'm now empowered by the resurrection, no longer limited by the law. I am actually connected with God, the source of life, right? You are no longer who you used to be. Paul argued that. We looked at that last week, that the old man, your old self, was crucified with Jesus and left on the cross. And when you believed in Christ, you were raised with Christ, now filled with His Spirit, filled with His resurrection life. This isn't something you work for. It's not something you earn. It is something you receive as a gift by grace through faith. So here's what I want you just to remind you. And Adam, you're cut off from, from what you most deeply desire, the God of life, the God who actually makes life worth living, the God who gives you security and significance, the God who makes you worthy, the, the God who meets your need for approval and love, the God who gives you rest and comfort, right? All of those deep desires that drive you, you're cut off from the God who meets those things. And so as a result... Um, those cravings drive you, but you can never get to what you need. In Christ, that central problem is solved. In Christ, you are now united once again. You have peace with God, Romans, Romans 5.1, right? Because you have been justified by faith through grace, or by grace through faith, you have peace with God, and you stand in grace. You, you now can have your deepest needs met once again in the love and the approval of God. He is your security not your 401k, not your security system around the house, not, not your Volvo's airbags. He is your security, right? Um, he is your significance, not your job title, not how people look at you, not how many followers you have on social media. He is your significance, right? He, his declaration that you are significant is your significance. He is your rest, right? Not your Netflix account, not your vacation, not your, your, your hobbies. He is the source of true rest because nothing gives rest to your soul like just being loved, right? He refreshes your soul. He is your rest. He is your approval. He loves you unconditionally, right? It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you when he thinks that way of you, right? What, what is your opinion of me when the God of the universe delights in me? I'm not threatened by your, your lack of affection for me, or I don't need to crave it. I don't need to cater to it. I don't need to beg for it. I've got the approval of God, right? The love of God. And that allows me uh, to love you without trying to use you for approval, right? So that's the thing. My deepest needs are now met in God through the work of Christ. Your disordered desires, those desires that have been disordered by your sin can once again be reordered and pointed in the right direction. Y'all, this is true whether or not it feels true. 
That's one of Paul's central points. This is true whether or not it feels true. You've been delivered from here to here, right? Now, in a lot of ways, you're still the same person. We're going to talk about that. You, you bring a lot of this with you when you come over here. Who you were is dead, right? You are a new creation in Christ, but until you receive the resurrection of the body, you're still going to be struggling with a lot of the same instincts and, and drives that you had in Adam, right? But in Christ, those disordered desires can once again be reordered. This is true, right? Uh, verse 11, in fact, says that. If you want to go back, we, look, we ended last week with this. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, right? In other words, you, you need to look at this and say, yeah, this is true. Even if it doesn't feel true, I believe God's promises. I believe the gospel did this even if it doesn't feel true right now, right? Consider it to be true. That's what he's like saying. He's not saying make it true. He's not saying earn it to be true. He's not saying, you know, be good enough so that you can trick yourself. No, he's like, consider it to be true. God has declared it. Who are you to deny it? Yeah, but it doesn't match my experience. Okay, that doesn't change it, right? Consider it to be true. By faith, receive this incredible gift and, and believe it, receive it to be true, right? Receive this blessing by faith, even if it doesn't match your performance. Now again, look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Three critical words in this verse that we've already unpacked and explained. And it helps us explain what Paul's getting at here. Sin, body, passions, right? When we talk about sin, are we talking about all the bad things we do? No. Hamartia, the Greek word at the root of it means to miss the mark. So we're talking about sin. We're not talking about the bad things we do. That's part of it. We're also talking about the good things we don't do, right? We're, we're talking about all the things we should have done and didn't do, right? Here, but at the heart of it, what we're talking about is our attempt to get the fullness of life in ways that we can't find it. Sin is, in essence, our pursuing things that aren't God and asking them to do for us what only God can do and be for us what only God can be, right? Hamartia, missing the mark. It is, it is the behaviors that result from our disordered desires. Yeah. I love kids. Sorry. Um, so sin, missing the mark, right? Um, so, so do not allow those disordered desires to drive you to things that don't give life. Don't let the deceptiveness of sin continue to deceive you into thinking that your job can give you ultimate significance, right? Don't, don't let that reign, right, um, in your mortal bodies. The, the word body is the Greek word soma. We talked about this last week. The body itself isn't evil, Right? He's simply saying it's the vehicle by which we act on and interact with the world, right? So, so it is the vehicle through which we interact with what is created. And, and it is in this body that we pursue sin, right? So, so every time I, I use my intellectual capacity at work to try to earn uh, people's respect so that I can earn significance, and I want that corner office, and I want people to respect me, right? So I'm doing all these things. I'm using my body in, in the way I interact with the world and act on the world as a vehicle of sin, 
to miss the mark. Are you guys following me? It's worldliness, right? It is the essence of worldliness, which is our attempt to, to pursue in creation what only the Creator can give, right? So the second key word is body. The third is passions, right? Which, which is part of the reason I think a lot of times when they read this verse, people think automatically of sexual sins. Well, clearly Paul is telling us to avoid sexual sins because he's talking about passions, and passions and lusts are sexual. No, passions are the driving forces of our disordered desires. They're the things that, that the lusts, the yearnings, the driving desires for significance, for security, for rest, for comfort, for approval, for love, right? But they're pointed in the wrong directions, right? So, so the critical words, what he's saying here is, is not do your best to avoid the bad things and go do the good things. What he's saying is don't let this force, and the key word that we're going to look at, is reign in your life. You're not in this kingdom anymore. You're no longer a subject of Adam. You are no longer helpless and enslaved to your disordered desires. That's not who you are anymore. You have been delivered. Your eyes have been opened to the reality. You're no longer in the asylum. Stop the insane pursuit of things that don't give life pretending like they do. Therefore, do not, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, Right? So he's saying this, kind of the same thing, but in this case, it's more graphic. Like, don't present the members of your body. Like, like now he's actually thinking of this idea of, of showing up and, and presenting as a gift or presenting for service. It's actually a military uh, uh, analogy, right? Like you're showing up to, to the sergeant. Like, I present myself for service, right? Don't show up here. And, and present the members of your body, not just your hands and your feet and your tongue and your eyes, but your mind and, and, and your heart and, and the energy and the pursuits and, and, and the ambitions and, and all the things that make up how you interact with the world and act upon it. Don't present yourself to this sergeant, to this, to this master, right? Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves, show up, stand at attention, present yourselves to God. This is where you are, right? You're now in Christ. You are now intimately connected with God. He's not waiting for you to prove yourself. He's not waiting to find out if He, if he likes you. He's already declared His love for you. Show up. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You've already, like, by faith, man, I believe this is true. By faith, his death was my death. By faith, his resurrection was my resurrection. Now show up, man. Present yourselves to God. Come before God as one beloved by God. Present yourself to God as one already approved by God. Like, like show up. At the table of grace, show up in the standing of grace and receive that love. Like, like, be the kid who comes home 
And your dad is so ridiculously excited to see you that he throws everything down and he embraces you. Like, show up. Present yourselves to God. Don't show up over here presenting yourself to your old master as if you were still enslaved. Man, show up to be loved. Show up to be embraced. Present the members of your body. Present yourself, all of you. To God, as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, again, that focus on the body, the way we interact with the world and act upon it, to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't be who you were. Be who God has declared you to be. All right, so this is really incredible, y'all, because what's beautiful about this is that the kingdom of God is made up of traitors and sinners. That's every single one of us, traitors and sinners. We, we were all here, enslaved to the wrong master, following the wrong pursuits, looking to the world to do for us what only God could do. We were all idolaters and sinners. God redeems us. And declares us to be what we long to be. Right? He declares us to be righteous and we long to be righteous. He declares us to be, to be his children. Man, we long to be loved. We have been made saints through the work of Christ. We don't make ourselves saints to be received by Christ. It is because of what he's done for us, not because of what we do for him. We receive it. We are bad people who have been declared and made good through the work of Christ. Sinners loved and accepted by grace. And we as a community are united in our humble, overwhelming gratitude to the God of grace. All right? We don't show up to present um, ourselves to the wrong side. We are to be instruments. That, that phrase is used twice, right? In, don't, don't present yourself as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself as instruments of, of righteousness. I think the word instruments is a, a very unhelpful word. <laughs> um, what is an instrument, right? That could be like anything. Like, am I a flute? Or... Or, or a guitar, or a scalpel, or a pencil, right? What is an instrument? That's so vague. So I looked it up, and I was actually a little surprised. This was new to me. Um, I don't know that I've ever looked this word up and studied it before. Um, the word is, is uh, hoplon, Greek word hoplon. Um, and about 75% of the time, the word is translated weapon. Weapon if it's active, armor if it's passive. So in other words, it, it, the root of it um, is, is like in Ephesians 6 where it talks about put on the full armor of God, the panoply. The, the root of that is the same word. It, it carries the same idea, right? It's that passive sense of either protection or the active sense of, of weaponizing, right? That grabbed me. I'm like, wait a minute. Don't make yourself a weapon of unrighteousness, right? Read it again. Do not present your the members of do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, 
But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons for righteousness. Um, Whoever you present yourself to, you become a weapon for. Like either for the world against God or to God against the world. And by world, I mean worldliness, not the world itself. God loves the world and is redeeming the world. But worldliness, the systems we create in opposition to God. Present yourself as weapons of righteousness. So considering the reality of what Paul is teaching, um, he's basically saying stop showing up. And yielding yourself to your worldliness, pursuing things that aren't God and asking them to do for you what only God can do and be for you what only God can be. When you do, you're becoming a weapon of the world. You're actually opposing the work of grace. And you're, you're aligning yourself with the enemies of God. Instead, show up and respond to the love of God to you in Christ. Be loved. And in presenting yourself to God as one loved by God, right? Not performing for God, not bringing your best to God, not not like, here I am, I got it all figured out, God, but you as you are, exactly as you are right now, just coming and saying, I am ridiculously loved by God, by grace, right now, I receive by faith this to be true. When you do that, you're presenting yourself as a weapon of righteousness. Stop presenting yourself as a weapon to the opposing side. It doesn't just hurt you. It hurts others. And it defrauds God of his glory. So this verse, verse 13, presents two aspects. Stop presenting yourself to unrighteousness or to sin. Start presenting yourself to God as one who has been brought from death to life, who is now accepted, loved, and in Christ. Two parts. And what that means is this, y'all, and I'm going to put it in Steve language. First thing he's telling us to do is start recognizing the worldliness in our lives. Where are you looking to the world to do for you what only God can do? Where are you looking to the things that were created and asking them to be for you what only God can be? Learn to recognize your worldliness. You don't see it automatically because it's ridiculously deceptive. And not only is it deceptive, it's really, really alluring. We kind of love it, right? When, when we subtly feed off the praise of others, and that makes us feel more significant and important and powerful, that is the subtlety of sin. Because what we're saying in that moment is I'm more important because I'm seen as more valuable. And so the end goal then, of course, is to be seen as more and more valuable, right? And if you're seen as more valuable than me, then you become a competition to me instead of community to me because I need to be seen as more valuable to you. If you get credit that I think is my due, now you're my enemy, right? Just recognize the impulse of worldliness. Start seeing it, right? Start seeing that you are chasing money. Because you're pretending it can give you security. 
Now, y'all, your 401k can't make you secure in this world. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. At the end of the day, those things that you're chasing and looking to in the world to make you secure can't. That's why it only increases your anxiety. Like, like I know guys who have really succeeded in the money game, and they're not happier. They're not more secure. They're filled with riddled anxiety, constantly watching the markets, afraid that they might not be able to keep what they have and get more because at any minute they could lose it all. Recognize that chasing sex and pretending that it can give you intimacy is worldly. Sex is a gift given to us by God to be used in, in, in a very specific way, in, in covenant relationship of marriage, right? When, when we misuse that gift, it is worldliness. It is us trying to get from that experience something it can't give, a sense of worthiness, of love, a sense of power, a sense of comfort and security. It can't give you those things. It was never designed to, right? Sex can't give you intimacy. Stop chasing morality and religious performance as if somehow it could make you worthy. Stop trying to fix yourself. I mean, some of you have this deep sense of this is right and this is wrong, this is good and this is bad, and when I'm good, I'm loved, and when I'm bad, I can't even look at myself, let alone let others see me. Recognize the worldliness at the heart of your self-improvement projects, that that is your desperate need to earn what you can only receive by grace. To impress yourself enough that you feel secure in your opinion of yourself because you think if you can just get to that place, then you won't feel exposed in your weakness. And, and what you're really saying is when I get to that place, I won't need grace. And that's really what I don't want. I, I don't want to need grace because that makes me feel vulnerable and exposed and weak. Y- y'all following me here? Identify your worldliness. Your your disordered desires are going to manifest different from my disordered desires, but they all run in the same stream toward the same end. Independence from God. I will mark the boundaries of my own glory. I will establish the boundaries of my own security. I will define the boundaries of my own pleasures. I will be the one who, who establishes my own worth. And that runs in the exact opposite direction of grace. Because in grace, we don't earn, we receive. In grace, we don't perform, we are approved. In grace, we are humbly dependent in our weakness, not desperately trying to build our strength. Because we realize from the outset, it is not our strength that makes us secure. It is not our strength that makes us significant. It is not our pursuit of pleasure that gives us rest. It is not our ability to improve ourselves that makes us worthy of love. It is the love and the approval of God given to us freely in Christ. Identify your worldliness, right? Identify it and then repent of it. (laughs) right? Don't present yourself to it. Don't show up for service, right? Start seeing it and then recognize that it is actually your slavery, not your freedom. It is actually what is going to rob you of life, not what is going to deliver you to it. Stop presenting yourself to it as if it could take you where it can't. And instead, 
present yourself as one who is dead and has been made alive to the God who loves you, who meets you in your weakness, who lifts you out of your shame and your indignity and, your, and, your, and, and, and all of your brokenness. By faith, uncover your worldliness, and by faith, refocus your desires and love of God. Present yourselves to God as weapons of righteousness. All right, two quick final thoughts. The first is this, the word righteousness. When we think of sin as the bad things we do, we start thinking of righteousness as the absence of those bad things, right? So if sin is doing the bad things, then righteousness is not doing the bad things, which doesn't make any sense at all. How can you present yourself to God as a weapon of not doing the bad things, right? How, how can you be a positive force of a negative thing, right? That, that makes no sense at all. Righteousness is not the absence of bad things. It's the presence of good things. But more than that, it's the presence of a specific good thing. The Greek word for righteousness, um, dikainos, has as its root decay, which is the word for justice. Present yourself as a weapon of righteousness, of one who makes things right and good and just. Because sin is about injustice. Sin is about defrauding God of his glory and others of what they have. If I'm going to keep what I have and get more, I can't let you have it. I need to take from you everything I can and and keep you from getting anything I've got. Respect, money, wealth, influence. It's not about justice. It's about me. (laughs) At the heart of worldliness is injustice. It's me continually trying to justify all the ways I am defrauding others to get myself ahead. Right? The heart of righteousness is justice. The fullness and the flourishing of life doesn't come to me when I'm able to defraud it from you. I wasn't created to compete with you. I was created to be in community with you. The true wealth of this universe is love. And the more we give of it away, the richer we become. That's the essence of the fullness and the flourishing of life. Money's just a tool, right? It's just a tool to help you get there. Your possessions are just tools, right? Become an instrument of righteousness. When you present yourself to sin for unrighteousness, you are defrauding God of His his righteousness and, and others of what is their due. Even sexual sin. That's the odd thing, right? We talk about justice, but even sexual sin. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that when we sexually sin with somebody, we defraud them. Because what we're doing is we're actually using them. Instead of it being a covenant, celebrating covenant renewal activity that honors the other person, it becomes this thing we're doing that ultimately is about self. We're not doing it to to confirm a covenant or celebrate a covenant before God and and truly love the other. We're we're doing it for pleasure. We're doing it for ourselves. We're defrauding. Paul says we're defrauding them. It's an issue of justice. We are being unjust. All sin is an issue of justice. You know, that whole question of whether or not the church should be involved in issues of justice. Such a silly question. Should the church be involved in issues of social justice or 
Y'all, isn't that a distraction from the gospel? It's the wrong question. Because there is no righteousness without justice. The heart of righteousness is the active pursuit of justice. We cannot be living out the implications of the gospel if we are not seeking justice. And that means in our personal lives as it relates to others, but it also means in, in, our, in the community in which we live, in the, in the systems that operate around us, right? Can, can you be acting in righteousness if your neighbor is being robbed and you stand by and watch and maybe even benefit off of the end result? That's not, that's not love. That's not righteousness. The gospel calls us to righteousness, and righteousness calls us to act in love for the good of the other. We are to become weapons of righteousness, weapons of justice, which really means weapons of love, because we can't love and not be concerned for justice, for for the fair treatment um, of others. As long as I'm treated okay, I guess I can just, right... Um, Second thing and last thing, what does it mean to be a weapon? It's because that's loaded language and it's really dangerous. To be a weapon of righteousness does not mean you go to war against those who are unrighteous. <laughs> there are a lot of people on social media who seem to think that's what it means. Um, they're belligerent and angry and, and, and they think if they can have the perfect argument against people they disagree with, somehow they're becoming an instrument of righteousness. To be a weapon of righteousness means to go to war against the power of sin and death, which means you are a weapon first and foremost against the sin in your own heart. God is at work always in you before he's at work through you. You are not to go to war with the unrighteous of this world. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to love. God is the one who's ultimately going to bring justice. Our job is to love and trust the God who will. By becoming weapons of righteousness, we are in essence becoming vehicles of love. The final verse in our paragraph, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace, opens up the next segment of the argument. So we're going to pick that up next week. For now, let me close this in a word of prayer, and um, then we're going to share communion together. And, um, and then we will sing. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Man, that you love us exactly as we are and you love us too much to leave us where we are. That you loved us in our rebellion and you love us now as beloved children. Even though we still have that restless rebellion at work in our hearts. And your goal is, is ultimately to purify us that we might be free. That we might be able to, to have our desires truly and properly aligned on you and the goodness of your character. That we might find in your love the ultimate answer for the desperate cries of our heart. Am I secure? Am I important? Am I worthy of love? Can I ever find rest? Spirit, will you help us identify those areas of restless worldliness that are at work in our lives? Will you give us the courage to identify them as the insanity that they are and to actually work toward repentance and believe the truth? Would you free us 
into love that we might become instruments of righteousness. Lord, we know that you can. We know that you will. We come to you as those who long for it and ask you to do that work in us. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.